sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Ignition, a radio show and podcast for the new evangelization. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and we want to set your faith ablaze so that you might live the adventure that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Before we get into today's topic, we want you to know that we love listener feedback. So if you've got questions about today's episode, or if you have ideas for future episodes, please contact us. The easiest way to do so is by email, and the address is ignition at sfcatholic.org. Again, ignition at sfcatholic.org. I'm joined on the phone today by Deacon James Keating. Deacon Keating, how are you? Good, thank you. Good, good to have you with us. Uh, Deacon Keating and I today are going to be talking about um, his journey of faith, um, as as we'll hear, as, as a cradle Catholic himself, um, how God has worked in his life, how Deacon Jim has responded to that, um, and drawn closer to the Lord throughout his many, many, many years of life, as we'll hear. But in case you've never listened to Ignition before, again, my name is Dr. Chris Bergwald. I'm, I am the Director of Adult Discipleship and Evangelization with the Diocese of Sioux Falls, which is Eastern South Dakota. Uh, been in that role since, for the diocese since 2002. Um, been in the role of husband to Germain since 1999. Um, she's from Ohio. I am from central Minnesota. All five of her kids, however, are born and raised here in eastern, I like to say, sunny Sioux Falls, even when it's cloudy. Deacon Jim, would you mind telling... I know we're going to be talking about your story, but like the summary, if, if they don't know who you are, um, just the sort of the, 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 the shorter version, I guess, of maybe what you do today, because we're going to hear who you are as you tell your story. Great. Yes, I'm originally from New York, and... Uh... I was uh, married in 1986 to Marianne, who was also a New Yorker, and uh, moved up to Connecticut. That's where we met. And then uh, various years after that, I was a college theology professor, then a seminary professor, and then I came to what's called the Institute for Priestly Formation at Creighton University, which uh, ministers to the interior life of diocesan priests and spent 14 years there. And now I'm beginning in uh, the fall of 2020, a new position at Kenrick Glennon Seminary as professor of spiritual theology. The seminary is located in St. Louis. What is, what's a professor of spiritual theology teach? Um, it would be the approach, uh, the, the intellectual approach to the content of Christ's life and how that life personally affects the way we love him. Mm. And it's an intellectual reflection upon how that personal love that we have for Jesus affects our our lives, um, what we choose, our vocations, how we treat people. To some extent, it's, it's kind of an integrative uh, course between the moral life and the mystical sacramental life. Okay. And so that, that's, you said it's at the seminary in St. Louis, Kenrick Glennon. So your audience will be almost, well, predominantly, if not uh, completely, future priests, diocesan priests, then, correct? 
Right. Correct. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so that's kind of uh, what you're doing now, and, and just very quickly where you came from. But I, I, I want I, I, I'm excited for our listeners to sort of hear um, how you got there, particularly the dimension of your relationship with God. So can you just tell us, start us off the the, the beginning about growing up and and how you were raised at home? Uh, you mentioned that was in New York. Um, and then sort of when your faith became your own, and we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. I was uh, raised in, you know what, from my perspective, uh, I'm in my 60s, as you said, I think you said many, many, many years. <laughs> yes. You added, you added like a third or a second many. When, when I did. Many years. I said, okay, that's about right. <laughs> but many, many, many years, my gosh, I was like a 90-year-old guy in a wheelchair. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm a spry 60-something-year guy. And uh, so that brings me back to a childhood in 1950s and 1960s, which we were quintessentially, you know, New York Catholics, rosary, mass, devotions at church, stories and lives of the saints, Sundays hanging around, eating with the family, doing not much of anything on the Sabbath, surrounded by relatives who were priests and nuns. Mm. So it's kind of like a storybook Catholic upbringing. And so the faith passed to me like oxygen. And um, luckily for me, uh, after a slight rebellion, nothing really dramatic that would make a good story, uh, I reappropriated the faith. Probably in my senior year in high school, I went on something called a tech retreat, mm. Teenagers Encounter Christ, which was a big movement in the 1970s in New York. And uh, I realized Jesus was real there. He wasn't just uh, a cultural um, appendage uh, to an Irish family that lived in New York. He was real, and he was still alive and breathing and existing and breathing his spirit into me. And so I said, this, this is real, and I fell in love with God. After that, I, tr- I tried to pursue a, a vocation in the religious order of the Capuchin Franciscans. That was the parish I was born into, a very influential group of religious men. And um, I went to Novitiate, and I spent about a year there. And I still remember to this day, the day I decided to leave, I woke up, sat on the side of my bed, and just knew, intuitively knew, that there was something real called a vocation, and that the one that I thought I was pursuing was not being given to me. And it was so good, this vocation, and it was something so desirable that I, I cried. I sat on the bed and cried because mm. I knew it wasn't mine. But it was beautiful. And the beauty was still objectively uh, good to look at and to admire and to appreciate. But I knew that I was not called to that way of holiness. And so I left and um, you know, banged around going to schools and decided to study theology. Went to graduate school. Uh, got some degrees, then started teaching high school. Had a great time teaching high school, uh, high school theology in upstate New York, in Connecticut, which is where I met my wife. And over those years of graduate study, my faith just deepened. I just realized how powerful theology was. So many people perhaps approach it as a textbook class, and maybe because it's so it's taught so poorly, mm. and it's just desiccated in terms of its life and it's presented maybe as history 
where it's presented as an abstraction of doctrine. You can't really engage your full self with it. But when it's taught contemplatively, when it's taught from faith, when it's taught in and of the substance of a living person, the divine person, seen historically and sacramentally and spiritually, uh, it's an astonishing study. It's an astonishing way to spend your life. Really, I feel quite privileged to be able to get up every day and get paid for opening books about God. <laughs> and in those pages of God, he, he lives. He not only lives in the Scripture, he lives in the truths about him, which are derivative from Scripture, which make up the content of theology. And so I've, I've, I've just had this most fantastic of journeys finding deep intimacy with the Trinity by way of study and then teaching when I study. Mm. So um, I'm going to start by, I want to go back to your senior year in high school and, and talk about experience when you are on the, made your, the tech retreat. Uh, but then I also am curious to, so um, your, you, you, what you've already shared reminds me of the reality of many people who don't have, you said, a brief rebellion, nothing worth, no, no exciting story to share. So oftentimes um, we hear about the dramatic conversion story um, where, you know, the, 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 the Saul knocked off his horse, the, the person who was a, a drunkard and everything. Uh, and you've, I have, have ta- you and I have talked about that a little bit. So that, that's not you. You're, you're more of the one who's sort of always, for, for the most part, always been there. And at some point, as you said, you appropriated the faith for yourself. It became your own, but it's always been a deepening. I, I'm curious to hear what you might offer others in that similar circumstance where it's always been there. And, and the, I think sometimes they like, I, I don't have that story. Um, is my faith authentic? How do I know my faith is real? We'll get to that, but I want to first go to your senior year in high school. If you could maybe unpack that experience a little bit more. Um, what was your faith like maybe the weekend before the tech and what was it like the the weekend after the or the, the 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 week after the tech? Yeah, I think it would be, uh, the weekend before was habitual within the fabric of a family. So faith and prayer and worship was habitual within the fabric of a family. After the conversion, so to speak, my life was personally charged with a presence who was interested in me, so interested in me, as to love me and give his life for me. So it moved from, I would say, a transmission that my parents were doing very well. They were transmitting something and putting us in the habit to be disposed to receive it, to actually receiving it, and not just um, not just living inside someone else's goodwill, my parents but actually receiving what they've been trying to communicate. So in that way, then, as you said, you became aware. So he, he God, was actually interested in Jim Keating. Um, wasn't just as an abstraction out there um, or some deity that has a lot of things to do. Um, he does have a lot of things to do. He's creating the universe every moment. But as part of that, he is aware of, attentive to, present to, loving you and me. Well, the amazing thing about that is uh, it's a personal love 
that embed you more deeply in communal reality, mm. which is, of course, what my parents were trying to do since I was born, bringing me to church, having me go to catechesis class, having you make good Christian friends. So when it becomes personal, when the love and the salvation offered from Jesus becomes personal, it actually embeds you more deeply in what your parents were trying to get to you all along, the community. And I think when it becomes an aberration is when a person may think the love that is now personal is to take you aside and uh, isolate you mm. in this love. And that would be like an analogy to like a very immature couple who are dating. And their immaturity makes them run off and just only be happy when they're together. And so their parents, their brothers and sisters, their extended family, their friends, they all become burdens to them. Rather than what authentic love does is open you to love more and more and more people, immature love isolates you. And so um, there are some Christians who I think live an isolated, immature love. But what I have found is we mature by personally receiving and then by being embedded in the communal. So in that way, so so that authentic experience of God's love, it's it's as you said, personal and communal. So I, I think of there's a there's a line in the catechism which speaks powerfully to the reality that as Jesus was this is um well a very close paraphrase to the actual text. As Jesus Christ was undergoing his passion and his death, dying on the cross, he knew and loved us each and all. So I think we just celebrated Good Friday a few weeks ago. Um, as even though we weren't in church, um, but as Jesus was dying on the cross, he was thinking of Chris Bergwald and Deacon Jim Keating, um, even 2000 years ago, thinking of you and I and everyone, literally everyone who hasn't ever and will ever lived, thinking of us, loving us, dying for us personally, but also us communally. And therefore, um, his love for me should open me up, as you said, to that community, which is body, which is his body, that is the church, the family of God. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, if someone was to ask me, oh, wow, you have this really exciting experience of Jesus personally loving you. What did you do the next weekend? And my answer would be, well, I did what I did the weekend before. I went to Mass with my parents. But I went as sort of a new man. Mm. It'd be very much like a, an adulterous husband, you know, saying to his friend, oh, I had an adulterous affair. And I came to my senses, and now, now what? The friend says, now what? And the man just says, well, I'm going to go home to my wife. And it almost appears boring. That's it? That's it, yeah. In other words, you left what you should have stayed with all along? Yes. The, the ordinariness of holiness is astonishing to most Americans who aren't on the journey to the Incarnation. There's nothing really exciting about faith. It's just an ordinary existence that's opened and suffused with an extraordinary knowledge, an extraordinary understanding and apprehension of a divine presence. But it's all happening, you know, on the corner of 58th and Maple, and that's, what, that's the way Jesus likes it. That was the whole point of the Incarnation is that we just go about our business being loved now, embedded in the ordinary, but it, it changes everything. It changes, the ordinary is now 
uh, enlivened in a new way, but still the ordinary, but you can embrace it and love it and not try to escape it, you know, with some rebellion. Like I said, I didn't have much of a rebellion. My rebellion consisted of one Sunday walking into a Methodist church, horrors of horrors. I was wondering, what the hell they do in this church? So I didn't go to Mass that Sunday, and I went to the Methodist church. Wow. That's my dramatic uh, conversion, my my dramatic infidelity, if you will. And so what did you do when you came to your senses? Well, I went back to the Mass. And there's nothing really exciting about it, but when it is suffused and vulnerable to this holy presence, then you can live the ordinary. And you can live the ordinary in the way that all the virtues have tried to instruct us to live, sober, you know, faithful, um, prudent. You can live the ordinary without trying to escape it so much. The reason people hate the ordinary and disdain it and then keep escaping with drug, sex, and rock and roll is because their ordinary is suffocating them. But with the divine, the ordinary is open to light, and it's, it's open to meaning. Mm. And it goes almost into the whole uh, transcendent and supernatural. And so you can live deeply in the ordinary as a believer because you understand that this is where God is meeting me. He's meeting me in the great gift that he gave me to begin with, ordinary human existence. If you're just tuning in and listening to Ignition, this is a broadcast for the New Evangelization. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, talking with Deacon James Keating of the Institute for Priestly Formation uh, currently about sort of his journey of faith. And we've been sp- Speaking about, he was raised in a um, a faithful Irish Catholic home in in New York. Um, and his his senior year in high school, his faith became his own. Um, no major rebellion prior to that. No major rebellion after that. So. Fast forwarding the, the decades after that, um, the years since your senior year in high school, Dick and Jim, um, and you talked about there about the ordinariness of this life of faith and and how the divine makes that actually interesting. So I, along those lines, I want to shift gears away from what I was we we're going to talk about. Um, I'm curious to hear what your how your experience of God, your relationship with God has changed, matured, deepened, what it's like now as opposed to what it was like that weekend, your senior year in high school? Well, part of it, you know, the astounding part of the weekend, the teenage weekend when God became alive to me. Of course, it's not, Jesus is so gentle with human beings, but it's not a black and white, it's not all of a sudden there is this uh, disjunction in life. You were this person before, now you realize he's real and he loves you, and there's a disjunction. No. I still carried a lot of the immature, neurotic, um, interior life of a teenager, still trying to figure out what it meant to be loved by God. And I, I had a lot of the residue of pleasing God in me, wanting to please, mm. wanting to be acceptable to him. Even though I received this powerful love, he was assuring me that I was his. And yet I still was trying to pedal the bike very fast. And I would say that maybe my understanding of Catholicism was still mostly ethical rather than mystical. And this is is very common. But as you mature and you keep experiencing primarily his forgiveness, that his forgiveness is what keeps you in communion with him, then all of a sudden, 
this striving for perfection, for ethical perfection, recedes, and there is a humility that's born in the continual stance of your asking for forgiveness, not in some neurotic or mentally ill or emotional disproportionate way, but just in, in the way of humility. You know how his holiness is, and you know that you are not there yet. You know that you are not, in, in, in a sense, uh, congruent with what it means to be a holy human being. And so you just reach out to him in forgiveness. The, uh, analogically, again, with, with my wife, you know, you live with someone 30-something years, and you do stupid things, and you do sinful things to her. And all of a sudden, one day you wake up and you say, wow, she's still here. I mean, you think about that. That's an incredible gift. And that became a very faint impression of what God is. Wow, he's still here. (laughs) And then you think, if a human being can do that, if my wife can stay with me for 30-something years and have a relationship, a communion, what am I afraid of that somehow... God is not more loving than a human woman? Mm. That's bizarre. And yet so many people are burdened by that uh, dis, uh, dysfunctional image of God, that he doesn't love you in this unconditional way. That's why we're going to pay very close attention to how God communicates his own dignity through other humans forgiving and loving us. Again, if a human woman can forgive someone over 33 years, stay in the relationship, and not only stay in it, but we both thrive in it, despite sin, despite the forgiveness. This is an astonishing miracle that there are people on the planet who stay together because of forgiveness, and the relationship is secure despite faults and sin. And so as I matured, I moved away from an ethical understanding of Christianity to a more mystical understanding, which is housed in the depths of uh, a person choosing you and continually, continually choosing you just because. The freedom of that. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to always be good. You can even screw up, and I'm still choosing you. This, this is the, the trajectory, I think, of mature Catholicism. To some extent, I think it's a little bit of a hint of Pope Francis. Uh, people get a little bent out of shape sometimes with Pope Francis, but the more I listen to him, the more I realize he is trying to communicate that, and this is what Pope Benedict also says, that the essence of Catholicism is not ethical. The essence right. of Catholicism is surrender to communion. And if, you, and if you don't go around talking about moral faults all the time, people think you're a laxist. But I think it's just because he lives so deeply in the communion that it no longer occurs to him to have an external measuring yardstick that he always has to constantly look toward. Mm. Again, it's very much like marriage. I don't go around saying to my wife every day, how am I doing? Am I, am I up to your level? Do you still love me despite the fact that I you know, didn't take the garbage out or something? That's not the that's not what the conversation is about. The conversation is just about delighting in each other each other's presence, being with each other. So I think that would be the maturation trajectory from maybe an ethical 
to a mystical. And and the ethical and the and the moving from an ethical to mystical doesn't mean all of a sudden you do immoral things. It means that the immoral things you do are more quickly and more substantively understood within the communion that is larger, greater, deeper than a fault. Amen. Yeah, if you're listening to just tuning in, rather, this is Ignition, a broadcast of the New Evangelization. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, talking today with Deacon James Keating of the Institute for Priestly Formation about his journey and the lessons from it, if you will, that might apply to some or even all of us. Deacon Jim, we've just got uh, a couple minutes left. Any Anything else in life that you were just talking there at the end, the, the transition from an ethical Christianity, where it's about what I'm doing to please God, to a mystical Christianity in which I'm aware that he loves me just because. Not because I've done it right, um, not because I've done the right things, but he just loves me just because. Any Anything else that you think would be helpful in these last two, three minutes um, from your own journey of faith for the sake of our listeners? Well, I think what I found out there was that it was, it was backwards. There was a theologian, um, Henri de Lubac, who once said, mysticism before morality. And I think our faith, to some extent, probably doesn't trust human beings enough um, to lead them deep into a spiritual conversion. And so we usually begin with, you know, wash your hands and, and put the silverware away in the right order, and we begin with rules. And because we begin with rules, we become habituated to rules, and, and it becomes maybe our lens through which we see everything. Hmm. But what if we were habituated to the mystical, to the transcendent, to the supernatural, to what Bishop Barron talks a lot about, to beauty, and, and, and to find that as we connect and commune with that beauty, we are bored with evil. So it's not like um, somehow when you trajectory into the mystical, uh, anything goes, just the opposite. The holier you become, the more you see evil as irrelevant and boring, and you don't perform these evil acts, because your communion with the holy is so satisfying that you would, you, you would never even imagine going toward evil. In a prosaic way, um, Paul Newman, the actor, once said, and someone said to him, you're a Hollywood star, and you never cheated on your wife, you know? And he says, what? He says, why would I do that? Uh, does a man go out for a hamburger when he's got the best steak at home? <laughs> and this is true with the spiritual life. It's the closer you get to God and his beauty, the more the unethical and the immoral simply does not interest you. Dean Jim, I think I found the title for this episode, Bored with Evil. I think that's going to be my title for for, for your, your journey. Um, so it's not about what we don't do. It's about who he is and what he's done for us. Would that be another way to summarize the distinction? Yes, it's, about, it's all about him. Right? The, the, the more mature in the spiritual life you become, the more simply fascinated you become with God. And that's another reason why why evil reigns in the saint. He's so fascinated with God, he's not thinking about pleasing himself. For the rest of us who are not saints, we still have this residue of self-pleasure mm. and fear that we're somehow going to be forgotten or left out. 
for the saint, he is so taken up with the person who loves him that he forgets himself. And the irony is God then takes care of him providentially. As he forgets himself, God gives him more, more of what the human needs. Amen. Deacon Jim, I'm going to have to interrupt there because we're running out of time. Thanks again for being with us today. Okay, thank you. Good to be with you. God bless.